This is Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe. Now, here's Patrick McEnroe. All right, time for another edition of Holding Court, everyone. Patrick McEnroe here, and uh, you know I've been trying to track this man down for a long time. He's hard to nail down because uh, he's a legend. He's a tennis coach legend. Uh, he was my coach at Stanford University in addition to coaching my brother John, uh, uh, lots of other top players that came through Stanford University. He's the one, the only, Coach Gould. Coach, how the hell are you? Patrick, good to hear from you. After that introduction, I'm not so sure, though, because uh, legend means a couple things. It means, number one, old, and number two, uh, the legends are made by players like you and Mac, who, uh, <laughs> Mac, P. Mac and uh, Mac, that uh, give you the reputation. So you guys are actually my coaches. Well, listen, uh, you know, I, I, I tell people this story all the time about my, my 10 years as a Davis Cup captain. Now, just to put it in perspective, you were the Stanford head men's tennis coach for 38 years. You started in the year that I was born, by the way, which was 66. Uh, you put Stanford tennis on the map in, in, a, in a way that nobody's ever done. Seven, 17 NCAA team championships, okay, for Coach Gould and Stanford. But I always tell people that when I got to Stanford and I was lucky enough to play on, on, on a couple of your teams, uh, I took what I learned from you to my Davis Cup career, which was I never forget what you I never forget a lot of things you told me, some of which I can't repeat on the podcast. <laughs> uh, but no, one of which was I treat everyone fairly, but not necessarily the same. Please explain. Well, everyone's different. I think uh, Patrick and your own kids are all different, and it's weird because you don't know why. And 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 as a team, you tend to want to make everyone the same. You know, we. We do it. We do all this this way, guys. These are our rules. We all do these rules. Uh, these are what our goals are. We all have these goals, and and, and that's not how it works. Uh, everyone has a little bit different agenda. Everyone has a little bit different gene, a makeup of genes. And I think that uh, the big challenge in coaching is trying to figure out which button to push when with which which person. And, and as a coach, you don't know that. And a lot of times, it's like it's like the guy calling balls and strikes for the. Uh, for the catcher in the dugout, uh, he doesn't know whether he calls going to be right or not. He looks at the percentages, look at how well he knows the, the pitcher, how well he knows the batter, uh, and then he'll call a pitch. And, and the catcher will do the same thing. And, and it may be wrong, it may be right, but you kind of learn the odds as you get to know the people a little better. And, and I've been wrong many times. But, but you have to try. You have to have the guts to try until you find out what works for that person. And I think that's the big thing that as I got more confident in my coaching that I was able to do better. Now, I want to ask you, because I always talk to people on my podcast, Coach, about uh, obviously their, you know, what they've done in, in tennis, and, and obviously tennis has been your life. Some people I have on the podcast are not tennis people, but they love tennis. So I want to ask you how you got started in tennis and what got you interested just as a kid. How did that happen? <laughs> well, I'm a farm boy, Patrick. Uh, I didn't want to go near tennis racket. I had my jeans on. I had my horse, my 22 rifle, which I'd shoot squirrels with and <laughs> rabbits and stuff like that. And, and uh, I didn't want any part of it. My mom, who didn't really play tennis, but thought it was a nice sport, uh, told me, hey, there's some lessons being given at a neighbor's house that has a tennis court. Uh, I, want you to, I want you to try it. I said, no way. And she said, uh, I was about 11 years old at the time. I said, no way. I'm going to wear little white shorts and go downtown in the 
across the street. Are you kidding me? And she said, yeah, you're going to try it. I said, no, I'm not. She said, well, do you want to ride your horse this summer? Mm. <laughs> so, of course, that was an easy decision. I said, okay, I'll try one lesson. Right. Uh, the story goes, and this is a true story, I get there and wait a couple minutes for the lesson to end ahead of me. Right. And uh, these two little twins are out there in their halter tops and hot pants in those days, you called them. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you, they're, they are pretty hot. And I'm thinking, you know, as an 11-year-old, the hormones are starting to go. I'm thinking, wow, uh, this sport might be okay this after be okay all. It's got me. something right. anyway. Right. Yeah, and then, and then I got on the court thinking it's a wuss sport. Mm-hmm. And my coach is a guy named Harold Chafee. I don't know if you ever knew Nancy Chafee Kiner. Oh, sure. Kiner. I remember that name. Yes, absolutely. Well, Nancy was one of the world's top 10 players, and right. he was her, her dad and coach. And, and, and he knew I didn't want to be there. And, and so he made everything I did, big booming voice. He made everything I he equated everything I did with a, with a sport. Mm-hmm. He said, yeah, you, yeah, Dick, you got to, Richard. <laughs> Richard, you got to step into the ball like Rocky Marciano steps into the punch. Right. You have to watch the ball like Ralph Kiner watches the ball come out of the pitcher's hand. And, and all of a sudden, uh, I thought, wow, this is, this is pretty exciting in this ball and the strings. And, and I went home and never put a racket down. I thought it was the best thing that ever happened. And it was all because of this guy and, well, maybe the two little gals. I, ironically, the two gals went on, uh, their, their brother, older brother played at Stanford and his daughter was on Stanford's first championship team and won the championship point in doubles to clinch the first women's national championship in any sport at Stanford. Small world, how it all goes. That's together. amazing. Now, now, so you you get into tennis, and then you I don't know how you did it, but somehow you got into Stanford. You know, people ask me how I got into Stanford. I said just because <laughs> Coach Gould recruited me for tennis. I said I could play tennis. It wasn't because of my grades, but somehow you and I we managed to get through and get our degree. You got your degree, and then you got a master's degree, and then right away, Coach, you decided to get into coaching. You were the high school coach in Mountain View, which is a, a nearby town uh, close to Stanford University. Why did you decide right away to get into coaching? Well, I didn't. I, I went to Stanford. I want to be pre. First of all, I here's the letter I got from the missions office after I took the SATs. In those <laughs> days, they didn't tell you the score because it was like an IQ test and it right. was secret. So I got an note from the director of admissions, who's who at whom's funeral I had the honor to speak a number of years later. Uh, said, "Dear Richard, we wish to inform you the score you achieved in this last gap test is below that was." generally indicate satisfactory success at Stanford. We wish to let you know now in case you want to start making all that plan. Sincerely, <laughs> Rickford J. Snyder. And I go to right. Rickford Admissions. I go, holy smoke, there goes that. But then they fortunately do more than just uh, test scores that you grade and right. activities and things like this. It wasn't tennis, although Coach might have put a good word in for me. It wasn't my tennis ability. So I, I eked it out and got there. And I, I wanted to be uh, – pre-law, which mm-hmm. meant political science, uh, history type major, and uh, then maybe going to politics or something like that. And uh, I was working in the summer rec department for Ventura, and, and I, I loved what I was doing. I was teaching swimming, lifeguarding, and most of all teaching tennis. Then gradually I was put in charge of the tennis program when I go home for the summers, and I really enjoyed it. And so I decided I wanted to be a community recreation director, hmm. the superintendent that runs all the different programs, okay. parks and recreation and so on. And uh, so Stanford had no recreation major, but they did have a PE major, which is the closest thing to it. And a couple of my buddy football players were such. So they talked me into joining them and as a PE major, which I did, which got me my teaching credential and my master's my fifth year. And I redshirted one year because I had anatomy labs as a PE major that took all afternoon all, every winter day and was a little behind in tennis and got my fifth year eligibility back. 
and uh, my my uh, I got more and more involved in the idea of physical education and coaching and mm-hmm. teaching. And my coach said, you know, you ought to be a teacher because you have the security of a salary and a pension. And then on the side, the weekends and summer, you can make the money, uh, make some money by teaching at a club. Right. Put the two together and you have a nice job. So that's what I did. Huh. And uh, high school is where I started. And uh, junior college opened up a couple uh, minutes away a couple years later. And I went there and that was full-time tennis. High school, I coached football and uh, tennis, freshman football and tennis. And then in, uh, in the college, in junior college, just tennis. So from there, my coach retired to Stanford and there Stanford was stuck with me. <laughs> yeah, stuck with you. That's one way to put it. So let's get into some of those years, Coach, because I know I've heard you say often that, you know, the, the first big recruits you got were Roscoe Tanner, of course, who reached the Wimbledon final. Uh, Sandy Mayer, one of the Mayer brothers, Gene was his younger brother. Uh, they both went to Stanford, as did all the McEnroe's, my brother Mark as well. Tim Mayotte, you know, he was a top 10 player and countless others. So, but, but talk about you, you know, that, that kind of first big break for you as the coach and what that meant to get those couple of players in the door. I think it was 69 when Tanner came in, right? Yeah, it was 69. So yes, it was. Uh, actually, it was a really interesting thing. We, Stanford was never bad in tennis, and, and although they didn't have national championships uh, like we do now as a team, as a team, you sent four guys to nationals, and every time you won a match, you got a point in singles or doubles for your school. And uh, Stanford, since World War II, when that started, after World War II, had never been out of the top ten. My coach was there from that time until I took over, basically. Right. And the average finish for Stanford was probably sixth or seventh. But it was a little bit misleading because in those days there were, weren't a lot of indoor courts. It was before the indoor boom, and Chicago started there pretty much, and, and elsewhere throughout the country. And so tennis players would go to the sunny starts, maybe Miami, maybe someplace in Texas, or better yet, Southern California. Mm-hmm. And uh, Perry Jones, another former Davis Cup captain, by the way, who didn't know that much about tennis, but a great administrator, uh, ran the L.A. Tennis Club. Like, uh, so anyway, we were always uh, sixth or seventh in the country around there, and, and FC and UCLA ruled the roost. They were by far the best schools in the country, largely because of the weather situation, because of Perry T. Jones. And Trinity of Texas was really good, too, but they never placed in the NCAA because Wimbledon, the NCAAs were much later then, just before Wimbledon. Mm-hmm. And in fact, Eric Van Dillon of SC, as an example, when he was playing at USC, he had to fly overnight to Wimbledon to get right into the play on grass the next day with no warm-up, basically. So Trinity, wouldn't they would skip the NCAA when they were really good and send the players straight to the pre-Wimbledon events and, and warm-up for Wimbledon that way. Uh, but basically, it was SCUCA and occasionally Trinity. Mm-hmm. Buck Colts, Foiling, uh, the Kennedy had great teams at Trinity for a couple of those years. Uh, and then all of a sudden, uh, I said, well, why can't we do this at Stanford? We have good weather up here. It only rains a half inch a year, more than LA, and we got to do something about this. So we took a pretty good base of a sixth or seventh ranked team in the country and, and started building there. And I came in all cocky and figured out this is pretty easy. It's going to do, we're going to do this pretty well and pretty fast and told everyone we're going to win a national championship. My first year, top 10 for the first time ever, 16th in the country. And I go, holy smoke, this isn't that easy. Mm-hmm. Next year, we were 33rd. I didn't know that many teams in the country played tennis, for crying out loud. <laughs> right. and, and freshmen couldn't play in the varsity in those years, but we were getting better and building a little more depth. A lot of players from Southern Cal. But we started to get some better players. And, and then by my third year, freshmen could play not in our conference yet, but they could play in na- nationally and in national championships and in some conferences. 
So we went through the year with all my upperclassmen, but I had a good freshman class, uh, a really good player from your area, uh, Connecticut, in New York now, I believe, Paul Gherkin. Oh, sure. And also yeah. Mac, and Mac Claflin from Florida. Uh-huh. And they were the start. Stanley Pelser or Passerell, Charlie's brother, came the year before. Uh, he went to St. Mark's, Texas, and came to Stanford. So he was there first. Uh, and then came Mac and Paul. We started a pretty good team. I took all freshmen to the Nationals that year. Uh, Paul, Mac, uh, Claflin, and three other freshmen. When you can only take five guys, we finished eighth in the country with an all-freshman team. We hadn't played a match all year for, for, any, for Stanford, really. And, but that was a start. So we were building a base all the way along. And then finally, uh, after a couple of near misses, Dickie Stockton, as an example, mm-hmm. uh, near miss there, Zan Gary, a near miss there, uh, Bobby McKinley, another straight-A student, near miss there, a lot of fun recruiting stories to tell. Uh, finally, Roscoe, uh, who signed a letter of intent to USC, or to, excuse me, to Tennessee, but wasn't binding nationally, changed his mind over the summer. Because he was from Tennessee. He was from Tennessee. Lookout Mountain, from, Tennessee. Yeah, right. Lookout Mountain, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm, where Zan Gary is from. When I visited Zan Lookout Mountain, I didn't even know Roscoe existed. Uh-huh. He was about two blocks away. Didn't ever saw him there. But anyway, uh, Roscoe decided to come to Stanford. He signed a letter of intent to Tennessee, but he has already admitted to Stanford and told Stanford he could not, he would not come. So I went on my hands and knees to admissions office and said, you guys, you got to let this guy in. He's my big break. Uh, he's going to come here and help us turn this program around. Mm-hmm. And Roscoe was a really fun player to watch, really and just a wonderful personality with people. And he came and people came and we started getting people at our matches. He actually started the energy there. And the next year, Sandy came and we were on our way. And then you win, you win the first title, 73. You win it again in 74. Um Fast forward to when my brother comes a few years later, and amazingly, you know, people don't even know. A lot of people don't know this. John gets to the sem- he commits to go to Stanford in '77, goes over to play the juniors at the French Open and Wimbledon, and uh, because he won the mixed doubles at the main draw of the French Open with Mary Carrillo, he couldn't get to the junior tournament he was supposed to play. So he says, "Ah, what the heck? I'll play the qualifying for Wimbledon." Qualifies, gets to the semifinals in the in the main draw, uh, the the men's draw, loses to Jimmy Connors, and of course the rest is history. But he was already top thirty in the world, I believe, coach, when he went to Stanford. And you you remember why he decided to still go to Stanford for that one year, right? I don't. Well, well, partly it was because of you. That would be number one. I was afraid. I was afraid, I was afraid to ask. Maybe Patrick. maybe you were number two. Number one was my mom said. Son, you're going to Stanford because, you know, they, they were always my parents, uh, you know, God rest their souls. They were they were obviously into tennis, but they were even more into academics. So the idea that John got into Stanford, um, my mom was like, I don't care. You're going to play tennis the rest of your life. You're going to Stanford for that one year. So he comes in as a freshman and you already were loaded. You know, Matt Mitchell had won the NCAAs the year before in singles the team was stacked, and uh, what was that like when he came in as a freshman and he was already, you know, like a world-class player? Well, it was interesting because it was a very good team, and, and in those days, uh, uh, college tennis was really world tennis. Uh, uh, from that time, from the set, oh, probably from even starting the late 60s, mid-60s, when uh, Smith, uh, Stan, and Arthur Ashe, those were probably yeah. Pastoral, Arthur right. Ashe, those guys were all playing. Uh, that, that, the, the, 
really the 60s and 70s were the heyday, 80s, the heyday of college tennis internationally. Right. And uh, you could take a college team. I think our, our team then probably would have finished pretty high in the Davis Cup mm-hmm. against any other country. And, and, and that was an incredible team. Uh, Matt Mitchell, the defending. I, I, didn't, I had to set a lineup to go to the in, team indoors. I put it off all fall long. I gave, I gave John, I gave John the fall off. I've never done that before. But again, you don't treat everyone the same. Mm-hmm. John had played all spring in high school with a uh, fellow, a circuit in the East. Uh, you remember Bill Reardon and a great sure. circuit he had. Right. And he did really well. He's playing at Smith and Pass Rail and Ash guys like that in these tournaments and doing well. And he went right from playing all these tournaments and being in high school to, to Wimbledon where he did so well. And then he played, he never stopped. He played all summer long and he did well all summer. And so the last thing in the world I wanted, considering he had to be fresh for the NCAAs in May, was to have him burnt out and tired and not fresh then. And so I basically gave him the fall off, told him to stay away from the courts and get settled academically and enjoy Stanford. And uh, and, and that <laughs> he, he and that, and that he did that he did yeah and he did and and yeah. and he should well do that and and another part of this too you know you know you know your brother he's not a in general as a coach you think well if we do this thing enough this thing enough times repetitiously it's going to gradually become a habit and you incorporate it in your game well that wasn't your brother he had mm-hmm. a very distinct style a very distinct personality and. Can you imagine your brother hitting a hundred forehands a certain way? He's very <laughs> no, creative on the court, not. and that yeah. and that was his talent. Right. So it we didn't have any competitions in the fall, so I gave him a fall off, and that saved me in our relationship probably because I would I was a little more dogmatic in that at the time, and uh, and then he came out in January fresh and ready to go, and I put it off until February trying to decide who's going to play number one in that team. It wasn't. It wasn't fair to a guy who had won the NCAA championship not to give him a shot. Matt right. Mitchell, mm-hmm. who lives in New York, is yep. a great player. Great player. And, yeah. uh, and then on that team also, we had a rival of Max, Matt, Matt Mitchell's all the way through juniors, Billy Mays. Mm-hmm. And below that, we had a guy who finished in the college rankings, number 12, Perry Wright. And below that, we had a guy named John Rath and three freshmen who were really good. One, a New Yorker, of course, uh, in uh, – uh, we had an L.A. guy, Lloyd Bourne, and a uh, sure. guy from Middle Atlantic, uh, Jim Hodges, and, of course, mm-hmm. Peter Renner from New York. Yep. So that team was loaded, maybe one of the best college teams of all time. And uh, I had to decide who was going to play number one. So finally, we had to go to the team indoors. I had to turn my lineup in. So I, had a, I said, okay, guys, we're gonna, I can't figure out any way to do this. In fairness, and all due respect to all of you, well, I'm going to have these three guys, Mac, Matt, and Billy, play around Robin. Right. And they did. And, you know, Murphy's Law is going to have one and one, one and one, one and one. And then I'm up creek and I got to pick and make a choice. <laughs> right. And uh, then two guys are going to hate me and one's going to love me. So anyway, they played. And, and John beat Matt and Billy each in three sets. Mm-hmm. And then Billy beat Matt, which is not out of question. They were both in juniors a year apart and mm-hmm. great rivals and very close. He beat uh, Matt in uh, three sets to be number two. Then Matt had to play Perry a good friend, his doubles partner, and basically tanked his ladder match. So Matt, the defending champion, started the season at number four. Wow. <laughs> so that was unbelievable. To the indoors. Yeah. And it was, yeah. And then, of course, we had we had Lloyd and Peter and Jim Hodges all vying for the number five, for the number six spot. I mean, it was competitive. And those, and those, and, yeah, and those, uh, and those guys became solid pros, I mean, on the tour. Well, so. well Peter was, yeah. Uh, yeah, I watched Peter open against Borg, the defending champion mm-hmm. at Wimbledon. He was number 40 in the world. Uh, 
Lloyd Boyne was top 100 in the world. Uh, and that was a great team. And uh, it was a fun team. I, my biggest my biggest fear with that team, Patrick, was that it was going to self-destruct. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, these guys are still friends today, but they were such amazing competitors uh, when they were competing, especially if they had to compete against each other. If one guy looked the wrong way, his opponent would take his head off. His partner would take his head off. Right. And uh, my when we finished the Nationals, you know, usually you're jumping up and down and saying, yay, yay, congrats. I took a big sigh. I was sitting on the bench uh, on the court. Big sigh. I put the towel over my head. A big sigh. Let the air out slowly and said, thank God we survived. <laughs> and it right. wasn't easy. Right. There were, everyone had good teams in those days because all the kids went to college at least for a couple of years. And uh, college tennis was a heyday, and it was just fun to be a part of it. Well, it was great to be a part of it for me when I went in the mid-'80s, and we had a great team as well. The, the four years I was there, Jim Grab, Dan Goldie, and then the younger guys came along like – you know, Jonathan Stark and O'Brien, they came a little bit after me. Obviously, David Wheaton, uh, crazy man, Tarango, he was on our team. Um, so over over the years, Coach, I, I always marveled, you know, in my years there, you, you always talked about there's a way to do – the way we do it at Stanford. You know, there's a Stanford class about um, – the way we act and the way we behave and the way we win or we lose. Where, where did that come from? Where did you come up with that? Because I always admired that, and I, I tried to, I've tried to bring that to what I do in, in Davis Cup and the different things I've been lucky enough to do over the years, to, to win and, and lose with class. Where did, you, where did you start that? How did that come into your being? Because that's one of the big things I remember about you as a coach. Well, thank you, Patrick. And that, that was very, very important to me. And I, I, I think, uh, you know, a lot of in college, a lot of my buddies played football and in the off season they played rugby. And I think one thing I learned, not because I played rugby, I'm not smart, but I'm not, <laughs> I'm too smart to do that. <laughs> but, uh, these guys would go out there, my buddies would go out there on a rainy day and play uh, UCLA or Cal or whomever it might be. And they just bash heads in the mud. And, and it was brutal sport, a brutal sport. No helmet, no padding, really. Uh, just boom, boom, boom. And then afterwards, both teams would end up in the end zone with a keg of beer, and they'd be talking, putting their arms around each other, both, both competitors, both teams, and uh, having a beer and just saying, hey, you know, just relishing the moment they had, just trying to beat each other's brains out, and how lucky they were to engage that competition. Mm-hmm. And it really had an impact on me that there was a way to have sport without, without playing a rival, without hating, quote, quote, your rival. There was no such thing. And I think that really had an impact on me. I, uh, Patrick, as you know, because you contributed to it, I'm, I'm writing a book actually written by my players. And uh, out of 200 former players who are still alive, I had 162 responses to 20 really heavy essay questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and out of that, those questions, I formed chapters, and they're framed around the answers to questions like, like you ask, uh, what was our culture? Uh, what's the relevance of trust? Uh, things I didn't really... No, were so important, but everyone mentions what one. Everyone mentions what you did. You know, don't remember who you are, what you represent, and mm-hmm. so on. And and I think it really had an impact on guys. And and you know, you can compete, and even on your own team. You know, trust is a big thing, but not everyone on the team is going to be best friends. Often, siblings aren't best friends. You know, uh, but they always the trust of each other, uh, trust in the coach, the coach trust in them. Uh, as an example, we're big things. They said. So-and-so, maybe uh, these guys weren't necessarily my best friends. This guy wasn't. This guy wasn't. But 
But I knew that when push came to shove, he'd be giving it all for us. We're all together in our battle, and we'd we trusted each other to be that way. And it was a really beautiful thing. And, and that comment really struck me a lot. Well, I'll tell you to have that many players out of the 200 respond says, says is, is all you need to know about the impact you had on all of us, coach Gould over the years. And, well, let's, let's, I think, I think you're going to love the book. Uh, Tim Noonan, who's one of my first mm-hmm. teams. He was top, he was in the top 200 in the world. And, uh, as a writer and he's finishing up for me, I've done what I can do, putting everything in order and he's bringing it to life for me. And, it's going to be fun because I think it, it's not so much a book about tennis, certainly not about Stanford tennis, but it's more about a manager. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're asking, how did, how did you do it? I don't know how I did it or how it came about. So I asked you guys what you thought. Uh, and, and your guys' answers would guide this thing. Not very often you see a book basically on management written by other than Jack Welch, who's writing about GE himself, mm-hmm. how he led GE. This is from you guys, Ram, about what you felt was good and bad. And I think it's going to be a great book. I'm really excited about it because it's really based from, it's based around organizing all your quotes and these different things, put them together in different chapters and trying to bring it to life with some stories. Well, listen, I mean, what a great concept and what a, what a smart way to do it. And I can't wait to read it. It was an honor to be part of it. Uh, well, and, I think and, we've got to remember, you know, in anything we do, not just in athletics, but, you know, we work hard and, and you, know, you always think that there's an end result. Like, when I pay off the mortgage, that's going to be it. You know, right. When I, when I get my last kid through college, that's going to be it. When I retire, that's going to be it. But we find out that's not it. Mm. There's no it. When I win Wimbledon, when I do this, when I do this, there's always something else. And the point is that everything we do is really a journey. And, and we have to remember that as a coaching and whatever we do, whether it's our business team, whether it's our school team, whether it's an individual athletics, music, whatever it might be in our teaching, by example, by the way, not by saying what to do or telling what to do, but by example. That example is really powerful, and, and we have to remember as we're leading that example, giving that example, living that example, that it, life is a journey, that it's a process, and we have to learn to appreciate the process. I don't know if it was your brother or who it was, but sometime in practice, I'm pretty vocal, and I hollered way down four clerks or way to somebody, and they hit the ball on the bottom of the net, I said, that's what I want. That's, that's exactly what I want. <laughs> if it was your brother and it right. might've been, I don't recall, but he put, dropped his racket, turned around, looked at me, hands on his hips, face said, you gotta be serious coach. That was break point. I just lost serving the set. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, yeah, but you got your racket back. What we've been working on your, you got, you got turned well, you loaded well. The things you did in that shot, the preparation, little things are going to pay off. And, and, you know, of course, the kid, you lost the point. That's all you worry about, the end result. But you forget it's the little things that make up the whole, and they all add up. So well, well, there, keep that in mind in your business yeah. or whatever you're doing in life, and you'll be a lot happier, and people around you will be as well. A lot of, a lot of little things I remember, Coach. Um, sorry about the weather was number one. He used to call <laughs> us. You know, We used to think, maybe we'll get a day off. It's a little rainy. And we and you said, no, we, well, the courts will be dry, 2.30. We'll see you then. And wait then, wait and, till you see these stories. They're all there. Uh, and then you come out, and the weather's like perfect. And you say, oh, sorry about the weather, you know, 75 every day. But I always remember this. I always remember this line from you, and I'll wrap up with this one, Coach. When you used to, and of course, back in the days when you first started, those '60s, '70s, even into the early '80s, everybody came to net. It was serve and volley. That changed, and you evolved as well over the years with the way the game changed. You say, you know, chip and charge, get into the guy's backhand. If he passes you, chip and charge, get into the guy's forehand. If he passes you there, 
chip and charge down the middle. Down the if middle. He, if he passes you there, you shake hands and you say, too good. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I hate to say it, but I think, uh, I think we're leaving a lot on the table in today's game. I think these guys playing 20 feet behind the baseline, uh, not stepping up to take that second return, second serve return early. I, I just think that uh, I would love to see a Sampras in today's world. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was one of the last serving volleyers left and beating Agassi in his last championship, Grand Slam championship. Uh, uh, to me, is one of the last serving volleyers, maybe Rafter or someone that's still doing it some, but, but it was an incredible thing to see that he could still do it. And now guys are even farther back and everyone's trying to pound the serve to guys that are 20 feet behind the baseline and not swinging it out. And, right. and I just, I just think that there's still a place for attacking tennis. And I think you're seeing more and more guys are back to finishing points at net mm-hmm. from the backcourt, but it's hard to, it's hard to come in. Uh, if you're playing 20 feet behind the line, you know, and, and you have to learn to get up to the baseline and get there a little more. And I think, uh, Djokovic is a good example of guys that are doing it more successfully. And I think that, uh, in the long run, that's going to come, we're going to see a little bit of a rebirth of that. Coach, um, I uh, so appreciate you having, having you on my podcast, uh, to go down memory lane. I can't wait to, for this whole COVID thing to end. And I uh, take another trip out to the farm, out to Stanford to visit you and your amazing wife, Anne, all your kids, your grandkids and, uh, incredible memories I have of being out there. It was the greatest years of my life. So thank you for that and for all you've done for tennis uh, and for all those, those 200 players that have come, come, come and gone at Stanford University. Well, Patrick, let me turn that around a little bit. You know, I, I, I love what I did. I was blessed. I think being a coach is sacred, but it's sacred because of guys like you. And, you know, you say you can't have favorites, but I must admit, you're always one of my favorites and for good reason. Uh, your mom, your mom and pop did good, my friend. And I know it's going to be a hard Thanksgiving without them around, but it's also a wonderful time to remember them with thanks and for, for what they did to raise you guys. And, and uh, have a wonderful Thanksgiving, Patrick. And I, I just really honored to be your guest. Thank you, Coach. Best to you and yours. And I'm uh, thankful for my years with you as well. So all the best. Take care, my friend. Yeah. Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe is powered by Mudhouse Media. Thank you.